Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or words blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, creation. to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and the so clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Broadcasting live from Fort Mill, South Carolina, and it is Tuesday instead of our normal day Thursday, 
but we did this show today mainly because of uh, the guest that we are going to have on uh, is leaving. Uh, is going to be leaving Friday, early Friday morning, so we wanted to give him a little chance to sleep and not have to rush him out there on Thursday and he'd be all uh, all lethargic and tired the next day and that's, uh, you know, he's already having to battle with uh, jet lag and all that other stuff, I'm sure. So doing the show today, we have a, a really good show uh, for our first segment. Uh, we're going to have Marsha Montenegro on with us. Uh, she's been on uh, several times. We try and bring her on about once a month and have her give us kind of the update of what is going on in the in the world of the new age. Uh, a lot of Christians just kind of ignorant of uh, the new age, and I don't think they really understand the dangers that are involved with it. And uh, it's good that we are able to have her on to kind of help us navigate through some of that stuff. Uh, the, the second hour, today we are going to have Jonathan McClatchy on. <clears throat> Excuse me, and we are going to be uh, looking at Islam, and we are going to be contrasting it with Christianity. We're going to take time to look at the view of God, view of salvation, the holy books used, the afterlife, and uh, just kind of contrast the two systems. We we really haven't done that on on our show yet, and I think it's important that we do that. So. Uh, quickly here, if you've not uh, liked us on Facebook, you can go to our page, facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. Facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. There you will see our um, our updates that we do throughout the week. We've uh, done we've done a lot of shows, uh, almost two and a half years worth of shows, and uh, through that time, we posted a lot of debates. Uh, Roman Catholic versus Protestant, atheist versus uh, Christian, Mormonism versus Christian, and uh, as well as kind of the the kind of shows like these that we do as well on uh, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. We've done several, so be sure to go to our Facebook page and like that. Uh, next week, really excited to have our guest with us. Uh, will be Ken Samples. And Ken Samples is a apologist and philosopher with the ministry Reasons to Believe. And we're going to be looking at his book, A World of Difference, which I'm going through right now. And it's, it's, uh, it's an excellent book. So we encourage my friends to uh, check us out next week as well. And we'll be back on our, our normal schedule uh, next week. So without further ado, let me go ahead and introduce our first guest, Marcia Montenegro. And she is the founder and director of Christian Answers for the New Age. Uh, Marcia, was, who was a professional astrologer before converting to Christianity, is a graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary, which is a fine school. I recommend people go to that. And is the author of Spellbound, The Paranormal Seduction of Today's Kids. So, Ms. Marcia, are you there? I certainly am. Hello, Gavin. Oh, it's good to hear your voice. Well, nice to hear you and nice to be on the show. I, I look forward to talking about this topic, which is very familiar to me. <laughs> yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it over to you. Let me, let me ask you a question. Is it okay if um, while, you, while you're talking, 
Uh, if people call in, if they have questions about astrology or anything, or would you oh, sure. rather not? Sure. Okay. No, that's fine. Yeah. Okay, so the number to call is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. If you have questions about astrology and whether or not you think it's uh, okay for a, for a Christian to do that or if the Bible speaks on it, uh, call in. We've got uh, about 20 minutes, so feel free to call in and uh, ask your questions to Marcia. So go ahead, Marcia. I'll kind of t- turn it over to you and, and let you let you get going. Okay. All right. Great. Um, well, let me first uh, start off by saying astrology and astronomy are different. Uh, sometimes people get the words confused. Um, astronomy is a science and is the science of studying space and heavenly bodies. Um, so it's it's in that realm. Astrology at the planets and the sun and the moon mainly, although it sometimes um, considers asteroids and other things um, in space and other things that that don't exist, which I'll explain, <laughs> and makes an interpretation of it. So an astronomer might know how big Mars is, what kind of gases are on the planet Mars, and how many years it takes um, for Mars to go around the sun and how often we see Mars um, on Earth in a particular spot, etc. Um, an astrologer will know some of those things. Astrologer knows about the position of the planets and can calculate uh, based on any, um, well, not any date, but pretty much any date of anyone uh, living in the past few hundred years maybe. And the place where they were born, you can come up with the position of the planets at the time of their birth. And that's what an astrologer does. So the astronomer is looking for scientific data. The astrologer believes that the planets signify things in a person's life. And so uh, I was very interested in astrology starting in high school and continued to have an interest in college. And after college, I got involved in some other areas of the New Age, particularly Hindu beliefs um, and talking to the dead, communication with the dead, haunted houses and things like that took up uh, a lot of my interest. But the astrology interest never went away, and I finally uh, decided to to learn it. And I lived in Atlanta at the time, and Atlanta had an unusual situation that had been set up by astrologers before I came on the scene and by the city council. And what they did was uh, they said you can practice legally in the city limits if you have a business license. But to qualify for the business license, you have to show you know astrology. So you either had to take the exam given by the AFA, the American Federation of Astrologers, or you had to take an exam that was set up there in Atlanta given by the Astrology Board of Examiners. And I took that test. It was it's a seven-hour test. It's not Whoa. easy. You have to know, <laughs> yeah, you have to know the math um, in order to calculate a chart. And you can't use fancy stuff. You just have to sit there and do the formulas. 
Um, and then they give you another chart to interpret, and you write out an interpretation, and that pretty much takes up seven hours. So I took that, I passed, and bought my business license. So I was practicing legally, and um, I also eventually was on the board of the astrology examiners and was president. I was on the board for four years. I was president for the last, um, I mean, I'm sorry, not president, chairperson for the last three of those four years. And I was also very active in the Metropolitan Atlanta Astrological Society, and I was president um, from 1989 to 1990. Uh, so I also wow. taught astrology for um, over five years. So I was extremely involved. <laughs> I just wanted to um, say all that so people know my credentials and know my background. I wasn't just like dabbling lightly in it or reading books and trying it out on people. I was very immersed in it. I, I had done a lot of reading, but I was able to, to teach it as well. And I, I wanted to be an astrologer to help people. Now, the thing about astrology that's tricky, and one reason, there's a few reasons, but one reason a lot of people seem to think it's okay is because people think that it's scientific. And the reason they think that is because it uses some scientific terms. It talks about, um, you know, the, the way the planets are moving. It talks about um, how far away they are. Uh, and an astrologer can use his math to uh, compute a chart. I mean, of course, most people can do it on computers now. But um, astrologers who really know their stuff know how to do it by hand. And so an astrologer knows these mathematical things and these terms, these, these terms about the planets. And so it seems very scientific, but it's not. Even though it's using math and it's using um, position of the planets and you use something called an ephemeris, which is a book that shows the position of the planets at either midnight Greenwich time or noon Greenwich time. And you have to have one of those to calculate the chart, otherwise you can't do it. You have to have an ephemeris. Um, and that's used in astronomy. So people think that there's some kind of scientific basis for it. So even though the chart that an astrologer draws up may show the position of the planets at the time of your birth, and it may really show them from the place where you were born, once that's done, then the astrologer is going to give interpretations, and that is not scientific. That is where you are stepping into the occult. Astrology is possibly the oldest occult art. Um, it goes way, way back. Um, most people, uh, you know, back to Babylon, and a lot, some people even think the Tower of Babel was uh, something called a ziggurat, which was built... Um, to either worship the gods in the, in the stars or to um, in some way, you know, observe them or both. So it goes way, way back. Um, and they did believe that the planets, which of course they thought were stars, they didn't know about planets then, they thought that the planets were the homes of, of gods or were gods themselves. And I also want to say another thing. Astrology and astronomy at one time were the same thing because, of course, the science of astronomy had not been really uncovered. 
but there were people who were studying the stars and measuring distances. Um, and these same people were often the people who gave interpretations. Um, and so they were astronomers and astrologers. And this is probably what the wise men were um, in the story of the birth of Jesus, uh, as well as knowing other things. So at the, at the time, those two things were mixed in together. Later, in the Age of Enlightenment, you know, when science was becoming more um, rigorous and more well-defined and, and there was more knowledge, um, there was a separation. And, you know, so there was a science of astronomy and then astrology continued on as a separate thing. So right now, astronomers absolutely despise astrologers and have total contempt for them. Um, Carl Sagan was uh, often made fun of astrology. Now, I, now, okay, there's so much to say about this. I, I'm just um, I'm, uh, trying to think of the most important things to say. A lot of people ask me, there's two questions I get. One is, is it okay to read my horoscope in the newspaper for fun? if I don't take it seriously. And the other right. question I get is, um, at, well, I'm a Gemini or I'm a Leo or I'm a Sagittarius or whatever. Um, so, uh, and, and it really fits me. So is there something to it? So those are two of the main questions I get, both from Christians and from non-Christians. So the first one about reading the horoscope, um, the horoscope column in the newspaper that you see that says, you know, okay, today, um, you know, this is a good day to write friends or this is a good day to stay home or whatever it may say, or today you may hear from a distant relative or whatever. Those, uh, the, that horoscope, uh, since it's so general and it's divided up into the 12 zodiac sun signs, um, of course, can't be right for, you know, here you have a, pr a prediction or a statement for um, Virgo, let's say, for the whole day. Well, think of all the millions of people who are Virgos, <laughs> and that's obviously not going to apply to all of them. But it is based on the position of the, the planets that are closer in, which move faster, like Venus and Mars, and especially the movement of the moon, which changes zodiac signs every two and a half days. So it's possible for an astrologer to look at that and then make some kind of general statement about um, that particular zodiac sign based on the movement of the moon and those other planets. And I actually wrote a horoscope column for a short time, a very short time, when I was in Atlanta. So it's not just made up. A lot of people think, well, someone just made this up. In most cases, that's not true. It's somebody who knows how to look at the position of the planets and the moon and knows enough about astrology to put something together. Um, so on the one hand, it, it's not really meaningful, but on the other hand, it does have an astrological worldview world behind it. So when you are reading the horoscope column, you are reading something based on belief in astrology. And... Does God have anything to say about astrology? Yes. And uh, this is, there are many places, especially Isaiah 47, like the last three, I think it's the last three verses of Isaiah 47. And then there are other verses where um, the worship of the, um, the 
stars is condemned, and that probably included, you know, reading the stars. Uh, also, dividing up the heavens is a Hebrew term that was used for people who did astrology. The word astrology is a modern word, so there is no Hebrew word for astrology. So I, people should know that, uh, and that doesn't mean that astrology isn't what it is. It just they just use different terms like dividing up the heavens. Um, sometimes um, somebody who watched the sky, or um, you know who was divining by the stars. So there were different terms that referred to the practice of astrology, and in every case, God condemns this. Uh, in the broader sense, astrology is a form of divination, and divination is condemned throughout. Um, the Bible, you can just look it up on a website like Bible Gateway and see all the passages where it's mentioned and condemned. Divination is uh, trying to get information through a means beyond the natural means or it is reading a hidden meaning into something where there is no actual meaning. So you can be reading, trying to read a meaning into the lines of your hand, like in palm reading, or reading the meaning behind images and cards, like tarot cards, or reading the meaning of planets, like in astrology. All of that is divination. Using a pendulum is divination. Um, there's so many. There's just thousands of forms of divination. I actually have an article just on divination on my website, so that might be helpful to people if they want to go to uh, ChristianAnswersForTheNewAge.org. That's my website, and I have an article just on divination. I have an article on astrology and an article on horoscopes. Okay, back to horoscopes. Yeah, we, we, uh, we can post so, that on our, on our Facebook page as well. So. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Thanks. Um, yeah. So when you're reading a horoscope, you are – you are in a way giving sort of a tribute to astrology because um, you're reading something based on a belief in astrology. And here's another danger with that, is that you could be reading it for fun, but what if one day you read it and it says something that, ha that actually happens that day that comes true? That, that sometimes gets people hooked into it, and then they, they, they get curious and they want to read it the next day and the next day and the next day. I have actually had people tell me that they were addicted to reading their horoscope. So it's a very bad habit. And what I suggest to people is if you really have this desire to read it, just make yourself not look at that section of the paper and go get your Bible and read a passage in Scripture instead. Um, you know, that, of course, will feed you spiritually and will be more edifying. And don't get into the habit of reading the horoscope. Now, astrologers do something a lot more complicated than what's in the horoscope column. They're looking at the position of the sun and moon and all the planets and how they are um, scattered around the circle, the 360-degree zodiac. And you have that's divided into 12 areas that are called houses. And each house represents something. So if you have Venus in the seventh house, that means something different than Venus in the fourth house or Venus in the eighth house. So 
the astrologer is looking at the, where the planets are and what sign they're in. So Venus and Aries in the third house is a little different than Venus in, um, let's say, Virgo in the third house. And they're looking at the signs of the zodiac on the edge of each house that rules each house and the planet that rules the house. It's very, very complex. This is another thing a lot of people don't know about the occult is that when you really get involved in it, it's extremely complex. And it draws you in because it's challenging. Like learning astrology was mentally very challenging. It was difficult. The math was really difficult for me. But I had to do it to to what I thought of as the good stuff, which is interpreting the chart and what all these planets meant and what the houses meant and what the zodiac signs mean. So, you know, learning all that and then learning to put a chart together was, incredibly difficult. I mean, I spent two years practicing on it before I took the test, um, just practicing on people more or less and charging them like a a little nominal fee, like $10, um, so I could get practice. It's very difficult. And this, of course, does not mean that it's – I'm sorry, huh? Oh, no, I just said, yeah. Did you ask me something, No, 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 I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, and that draws you in. See, that well, that draws a lot of people in um, because it seems so profound. It seems deep. It seems like there's something really, there's some kind of deep, you know, secret wisdom in it. And that's how these practices of the occult draw people in. And then when I had clients come see me, I'm sitting there telling them about themselves. People love to hear about themselves. Okay, that's one big draw. The other draw is I'm saying things, and a lot of those things are going to apply to their life. They will tend to forget the things that aren't true um, or don't apply to their life, and they'll remember the things that do. Oh, the third question I want to answer is how does it work or does it work? Okay, first let me do the second question. I did the first one about horoscopes. The second one is, oh, I'm a Gemini, and, you know, it really fits me. Well, actually you know, you're not just a Gemini in astrology. You have, maybe your son is in Gemini, but, you know, maybe Mercury is in something Cancer, and maybe Mars is, you know, another sign, and and your your moon may be in, you know, Taurus or something. So an astrologer would say, well, you can't classify yourself just that way. I mean, even an astrologer would say that. If you look at all the traits, of all the signs, these are all human traits that most most of us have many of these traits, okay? And, and of course, we're not all the same. We have very distinct personalities. But it's very easy to look at the traits listed for your sign and the ones that seem to fit, you latch on to those and think, oh, wow, you know, this is really me. Now, a lot of that can just be coincidence as well. So that's why the signs seem to fit you. But I guarantee you, you could look at a list for traits for another sign, and, and there might be just as many there that fit you. Um, okay, how does it work or does it work? Okay, here's how it's, it works because it seems to work, and then there's another element of it where it works. Okay, how does it seem to work? It seems to work, number one, the client wants to believe the astrologer. They want to. They usually are coming to the astrologer because they either believe in astrology or they're open to it. 
They want to believe the astrologer. Number two, you can't ever rule out coincidence. Number three, the astrologer will say things that um, the client will apply to their life. So the astrologer might say, um, you know, I can see there was a lot of difficulty with your father when you were growing up. And then the person will think, oh, yes, you know, there was a lot of difficulty. He was always traveling. He was never home, um, so I didn't see him much. Or their situation might be that they didn't get along with their father, or maybe they had arguments with their father, or maybe their father was, you know, just um, distant or cold. So the, the client will apply things, and this includes things that, are the, that astrology calls upcoming trends. They usually don't like to say, I'm, I'm telling your future, what they say is they look at the position of the outer planets and how they're going to influence the birth chart um, over the next three months to about the next year. And I actually had clients that came back every year because I would give them their trends for the next year and then they would come the following year and I would update their trends. Um, so just coming one, you don't just have a client come one time. They can come again or they can come and you can do a relationship chart for them. Um, and, and I won't get into that, but that's another area you can do. So I might say, well, I see this really radical change that's going to be happening in um, your workplace. And probably it will start in six weeks and it may go on for six months. Well, you know, there's something that's bound to happen in their workplace. <laughs> now, when I say that as the astrologer, I really mean it, you know. But there's bound to be, for almost everyone in the job, something, you know, over that time period will happen that's unexpected or that's upsetting or that's um, disruptive in the workplace. Um, and a lot of times, you know, people will then interpret that event in light of the prediction of the astrologer. So that's how it seems to work. Then there's a fourth element, and this is where sometimes the astrologer hits hits it right on the on the on the nail or hits the nail on. I forgot how you say that thing. <laughs> hit the nail. On the head, or is that right? I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, something about hitting the nail. <laughs> uh, so here, so here's what happens. The astrologer says something, and it's very, very specific. Something the astrologer can possibly have known about this person, either in their past or something going on with them in their present life. The client hasn't said anything. This is the demonic element, and it is there. It is absolutely 100% there because all astrologers, just like all psychics, all palm readers, all tarot card readers, all of them have spirit guides. This is a basic fact. I can't prove it, but I am like 1,000% positive about this. And anybody, ask anyone who was in the New Age in the occult who's now a Christian, and they will tell you the same thing. Um, so everyone has spirit guides. And these people, of course, think their guides are benevolent. These guys are fallen angels. Fallen angels can observe things. They can know things about the client. Um, and somehow this information is passed on to the astrologer. There were many times when I was doing readings where I would suddenly 
um, either see something in my mind or I, or I would get a word maybe. It was usually more of a visual thing or just sort of a knowledge suddenly in my head about the person I was doing the chart for. And I would communicate this and the person would just be astounded that I knew this piece of information about them. Sometimes it was something no one else knew. They only knew it. This is this is a demonic element. This is how Satan um, hooks people into these things. Because I would not have continued doing astrology if I didn't think it really worked. If I didn't think that I could really tell somebody things that were useful and true about themselves, I wouldn't have continued in it. I would have seen it as a waste of time. But because these kind of things kept happening, of course, that convinced me and it convinced the client. So the client would come back or the client would tell other people about me. I never had to advertise. I had a continual stream of clients, um, almost all word of mouth. And uh, this was because it seemed to be accurate. And this was just... This is how astrology, this is how it is. And this is why I think it's important for Christians not to laugh at this stuff. I know that a lot of times, you know, it's easy to make fun of people who are psychics or astrologers or whatever. And there are some people who do these things as scam artists. I mean, their main thing is that they're a scam artist and they use um, maybe being a psychic or an astrologer as a cover. That's their that's their disguise, and they know just enough to, you know, sound like a, a psychic or an astrologer. They may know a little astrology, or they kind of combine the two, and they're a scam right. artist. So I realize there are people like that, but that is not all the people who do this. And none of the people I knew did this. All of us were extremely, we were all New Agers. We were all totally serious about astrology. Um, You know, we believed in it, we were dedicated to it, we studied it, and my friends who were astrologers, um, we never made very much money. The most money I ever made in one year was $15,000. That was the height of my fortune as an astrologer. I mean, this was a number of years ago. Maybe in today's money it might be, you know, maybe $30,000. That would be if you really had a lot of clients, and that's still not a lot. The only people who make a lot of money are if you have celebrity clients, you know, if you're in so, Hollywood or something, you know, yeah, then, you, these, then you might get these, money. Yeah, Sylvia Brown and these other high, high people. But, uh, Marsha, appreciate you being on. Uh, we've got to let you go because we've got uh, our next guest on. Okay. But that was okay. a really interesting segment, and what we can do is post that uh, article you had mentioned. We'll, we'll go ahead and put that on our on our theology matters page, and uh, give oh, people great, your, your website again, where they can come and, and check it's, you out. Sure, Christian Answers for the New Age dot org. All right, folks, and we have Marsha on once a month. She'll be back again next month with another topic, and uh, the show is podcasted, of course, so people can go back and listen to this segment again. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on, Marsha. Thanks for having me, Gavin. I I had no trouble filling up that time. (laughs) None at all. That's a a wealth of knowledge. We're blessed to to have you uh, be able to pick your brain on these things. Okay. 
Thank you again. God bless. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and transition now into our second segment of the show. Uh, We'll just take a a really quick break. We'll come back. We'll look at... uh, dive into Islam uh, versus Christianity. We'll look at some of these major concepts. Don't go away. Join us. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. Many people are under the mistaken impression that people from different racial backgrounds have big differences in their DNA instructions. But this is not the case. The entire human race has a remarkably low level of genetic variety. Some biologists have remarked that if you sequenced the DNA of two humans on opposite sides of the globe, their DNA would show less variation than that of two chimpanzees on the same mountain in Africa. These discoveries have profound implications. Since the human race has low genetic variety, this means it must have originated fairly recently. Racial groups have not, therefore, evolved independently over long periods of time. These discoveries are consistent with the Bible's version of history, whereby the human population originated from two parents only thousands of years ago, and that the people groups have originated since then. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. All right, folks. Thank you for joining us uh, back here again. We're going to shift gears and take a look at uh, Islam. And with us, our guest is going to be Jonathan McClatchy, who is from the U.K., and he is an apologist and frequent writer for websites such as crossexamine.org the Christian Apologetics Alliance, and Christian Apologetics UK, where he presents the case for the Christian worldview. He's also a regular contributor to the leading intelligent design website, Evolution News and Views, as well as UncommonDescent.com. He holds a bachelor's degree uh, with honors in forensic biology, a master's degree in evolutionary biology, as well as a master's degree in medical and molecular bioscience. And, uh, man, you can tell this guy is uh, not short on brains. <laughs> so, Jonathan, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? can hear you good. can hear you very good. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the program again. It's good to be with you again. Yes. Did I leave anything out there that you want to add? Say again? Did I leave anything out of your intro there that you, you wanted no. to add? No, no, that's great. Um, yeah, I'm just an apologist. I, I'm, I've done a lot of work um, in the intelligent design community, as many of your listeners may know. 
Um, I've also, I also do a lot on theology and Reformed apologetics. I also deal with Islam and comparative religion, defending the Trinity against people like Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, that, that's um, essentially what I do. Yeah, we are glad you are on our side too. I'll tell you. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit. How did you uh, How did you come to faith in Christ? Did you just kind of grow up uh, in the church, or how did you How did you come to faith? Well, I was raised in a Christian home, and I became a Christian um, in 1996 on the 3rd of March, and um, was uh, raised in the church. My father was an elder, and um, yeah, and so, so that's essentially how I became, uh, came to faith in Christ. And then my, um, my, um, I've continued to mature um, over the years and grew in my walk with Christ. I became interested in apologetics um, as, I, as I entered university in 2007, um, and just um, I've, I'm discussing the program before uh, my um, amazement at the wonders of the molecular world, and it was really my study of molecular biology that drove me into um, the, the field of apologetics because I recognized that these weren't the product of stochastic, uh, unguided processes that were in fact the product of design or teleology engineering. And, and so um, that was my introduction to apologetics, and I also began to interact more and more with people of other faiths who don't um, share my worldview, people who are maybe atheists or agnostics or Muslims or, or Jews um, or um, even Taoists and people of Far Eastern um, mysticist religions. And um, I became very interested in this question of how do we know that, that Christianity is true and these other religions are, are not true. And so as, a, as an evidentialist, an apologist, um, I feel that we have an intellectual responsibility to have a rational justification for our beliefs. Um, and so, um, you know, if you, if you go and ask the Mormon, why, why is your faith true? They will often re- re- respond to that by saying, well, anyway, I know my faith is true because I pray don't see the burning in my bosom. And as a Christian, I, I don't think that we can um, just use the sort of existential type of argumentation when people of other religions can use that as well. So I am very interested in uh, putting forward the publicly accessible evidence for the Christian worldview. Um, and so that's uh, really um, my, my background. You, you being from the UK, uh, talk yes, to us. What's, what's the percentage of Muslims uh, around there? Because I think maybe in the U.S., at least in certain, certain pockets, you know, we don't really have yeah, to deal with with Islam so much. So what's it like where you're from? Yeah, there's certainly a lot of Muslims. I mean, certainly in, at, at, my first undergra- at my first university I went to, where I did my undergraduate degree in forensic biology, there were more Muslims in the Muslim society than there were Christians in the Christian society. And so um, there, wow. there was a huge uh, demographic uh, there of, of Muslims. And, um, yeah, I, um, I often see Muslims, you know, um, handing out flyers on the streets, and so I'll go and talk to them, and I've be on uh, panel discussions and, stuff, and things with, with Muslims. And uh, I, I, I've gotten to know a lot of Muslims. I've um, been invited along a number of times to the mosque to have discussions um, with Muslims and talk to... Um, yeah, I have, I have a huge amount of uh, friends who are Muslims, and I think Muslims are really great people to have dialogues with because uh, oftentimes they are more open to talking about these matters than people who are atheists even and, and people who are... Who are um, religiously and intellectually apathetic, if you will. Um, and so it's, um, it, and there, there are people who are very easy to have discussions with, and, um, and that, that's... Yeah, one of the things you mentioned is, uh, like me, you're a, you're a classical apologist. And uh-huh. uh, one of the things 
we actually share in common with Muslims is a lot of our philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Indeed. So you're right. Different, you know, when we talk to Mormons, they're polytheists, uh, so it can be a little challenging, but with mm-hmm. yeah, we can we, use all the same arguments. And we also share um, monotheism with Muslims, right? Because Muslims, of course, are monotheists, just like we are, and, and Jews are monotheists, and we uh, they um, they also share a lot of um, they, they will agree with a lot of the Old Testament as well, right? They they agree with it, and they they, they subscribe to the, the the biblical history with respect to the patriarchs and the prophets and so forth. So there's there's a lot of commonality, but there's also some key differences, which we hopefully we'll get into in this discussion. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> let's look at some of these uh, some of these uh, topics. What I thought we would do is just kind of uh, what you could do is just uh, we'll look at some of the different branches in systematic theology, and you just kind of we'll we'll do first we'll do a contrastion of the Islamic view versus the Christian view on several different topics, and we could go back and look at some of these objections. So, just kind of as a as a contrast, what is the difference between the Islamic concept of God and the uh, Orthodox Christian concept? Okay, that's a great question. So, um, so in Islam, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, um, they are monotheists. They do a doctrine that's called Tawit, which essentially um, is meant to capture the, what, the concept of oneness of God. So unlike the Christian, who would say that God is triune, so he's, we believe in one God, but he's complex in his unity, um, Muslims would believe in the absolute oneness of God. So God um, doesn't have any partners, and to ascribe a partner to a life called shirk, he does not, um, he doesn't, he certainly doesn't have a wall. He uh, uh, repudiates uh, the concept that, um, that um, Allah should have a son, and maybe we could get into that later. Um, um, and the Quran misrepresents Christian theology on what it means, what, what the sonship of Christ means. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so the Islamic concept of God um, has um, the similarity to being monotheistic, but at the same time, it's also, it also absolutely rejects the Trinity, even though the Quran doesn't really properly represent the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and maybe you could explain a little bit. How, how, does, how do we as Christians define the doctrine of the Trinity? Oh, great question. So... Um, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, um, the, the, word, the word Trinity actually isn't in the Bible, as Muslims will often point out. Uh, the word Tawid, of course, isn't in the Quran either, although it's in the Hadith literature. Um, but the word Trinity is also in the early church literature, which is, earlier, which is closer to um, the, um, the Bible than the Hadith is to the Quran. But so the doctrine of the Trinity, as it's been defined in church history at the Council at the, at the, the Nicene Creed, or Athanasian Creed, and so forth, is the concept that within the one essence or being that is God, there exists three eternal, co-divine, co-equal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Share that being fully and completely. So the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. There are different, distinct persons. That's immensely important to understand. Um, but uh, they are the one being, okay? So, so that's that's how I would go about defining the Trinity. Okay. How about uh, what is the Islamic view of Jesus? I think sometimes people may have a misunderstanding and think that Muslims don't uh, 
don't really revere Jesus, but uh, what is the Muslim view of Jesus? Right, great question. So, and the Quran in Surah Al-Maidah, which is the fifth chapter of the Quran, so the 114 different chapters called surahs, and each surah is made up of ayat, which means verses. And in the fifth chapter of the Quran, um, which is called Surah Al-Maidah, each of the surahs have names. The, uh, the Messiah, this is in verse 75 of Surah Al-Maidah, the Messiah, son of Miriam, is no more than the messenger. There have been messengers before him. His mother was very truthful. Both of them used to eat food. Look how he explained science to them and see how far they turned away. So you're here that um, the Quran explicitly repudiates the notion that he is anything more than a messenger, a prophet, an apostle, or the word in the, uh, in the Quran is Rizul. Um, and, and, and so that, that's the first point um, to bear in mind. That's, that's one of the key differences. So he certainly wasn't God. He certainly wasn't the son of God. He certainly, um, is no, he's certainly not of divine status. He's certainly nothing more than a messenger. But Muslims would revere him as being a very um, virtuous man. They would revere him as being a prophet. Um, so another point, um, is in Surah An-Nisa, which is the fourth chapter of the Quran, 157 and 158. And we read the following. This is in the 40 words in the Arabic. It says, And for their saying, we have certainly killed the Messiah, Isa, which is Jesus. That's the word that the Quran uses for Jesus. The son of Miriam, the messenger of Allah. Well, in fact, they did neither kill him nor crucify him, but they were deluded by resemblance. Those who disputed in this matter are certainly in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it, but they follow whims. It is absolutely certain that they did not kill him. And in verse 158, but Allah lifted him towards himself. Allah is almighty, all wise. So here the Quran in the Spanish Horse Arabic words denies the central tenet of, Christ, of the Christian faith with respect to the crucifixion of Christ. Because in, in Christianity, the crucifixion of Christ is absolutely core and central to the, the message of the gospel. Now, um, it's actually interesting um, that in Surah Miriam, uh, which is the 19th chapter of the Quran, verse 33, um, Jesus is reported to have said, um, and peace is upon me the day I was born, the day I shall die, and the day I shall be raised alive again. So that's, um, that, um, there, there's, it seems that at least at a, at a first glance that, that could be um, some sort of contradiction um, although there may be ways of understanding that and resolving that. But, um, but maybe we, later we can get into talking about the, some of the evidence that Jesus was in fact crucified. Though many Muslims will often say that someone was made to look like Jesus and was put on the cross by mistake, and that's what it means by saying that they were deluded by resemblance. Um, so, so yeah, these are the, these are the, the two major, major points. Number one, that he was not God. He never said he was God. He never said he was the son of God. He never... Um, claimed to be anything more than a prophet, but they would be a virtuous prophet. He's the last, well, he's not, he's the, one of the last in the long line prophets. Muhammad would be the very final prophet. Um, he's supposed to have, in fact, prophesied the coming of Muhammad. Um, and he's supposed to be a Muslim. That's an important point. He was a Muslim. His, follow, his disciples were Muslims. He preached Islam. And second main difference is that he was not crucified. So those are the main differences. Often when I when I'm talking with uh, you know some of the political correct view of the day is uh, all religions are true and all all belief systems are true but um, I think there's such a contrast 
you know, between Islam and Christianity, that's a perfect example of, you know, just the laws of logic in action that both can't be true. Both could be false, but they certainly right. both cannot be true. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, of course, Jesus, according to the Christian faith in, in John 14, verse 6, claims to not only, say, not only be someone who said true things, but claims to be the ultimate truth itself, right? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Um, whereas um, that, um, and, and um, in Acts 4, verse 12, um, where we read that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to men under heaven by which men might be saved. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> right. If, if the Quran and the, and the Bible teach something so different, so starkly different on something as fundamental as the crucifixion of Christ, then you know they could both be wrong. Well, they could both be wrong, but they can't both be correct because they, they fundamentally contradict each other. Um, so, so that's a problem with the view that you know, we should all um, elim- we should all um, overlook our differences and just focus on similarities because they, um, there can only be one truth. Let me ask you this: The Muslims that you have engaged with, um, do they, do they, are they willing to make the hard lines and say that those kind of things? Are they willing to say that, um, you know, every other religion outside of Islam is wrong? Or, because um, I mean, I'm just kind of contrasting it. There's Christians today who will say, you know, it's, it's true for me, but it doesn't have to be true for you. Do Muslims have that kind of approach, or are they pretty pretty hard-lined on it? Well, there. I mean, most Muslims would um, take um, the view that I take that there can only be one truth. I think, at least. I, I mean, I've only talked. Um, um, I don't know if there's any survey data on that, but I mean, I'm talking anecdotally from my own interaction with Muslims. Um, now, it's, it's actually interesting that in Surah Al Kafirun which is the, the um, 109th chapter of the Quran, one of the very last ones. Um, we read, With the name of Allah, the all-merciful, the very merciful, say, O disbelievers, I do not worship that which you worship, nor do you worship the one whom I worship. And neither am I going to worship that which you have worshipped, nor will you worship the one whom I worship. For you is your faith, and for me, my faith. So <laughs> here we have you know, the concept of postmodernism um, in uh, the Quran. Now, this, um, you know, what, um, we, we need to understand the context, and um, you know, as, as we may get into later, as the earlier surahs in the Quran, the Meccan surahs, tend to be far more inclusivistic and, and peaceful and pacifist and so forth than the later Medinan surahs. Um, but, um, but yes, yeah, so, so some Muslims, um, the, the sort of Western um, view of interpreting the Quran is you let the, surah, the, the passages in the Quran you don't like be uh, reinterpreted in light of the passages you do like. And so a, a, a Western Muslim with postmodern um, inclinations um, may take this passage and, and use it to support his view um, completely. Um, if you read the whole Quran, I don't think this really works because um, all the, all, um, there, there's other passages which we call about the doctrine of with the later surahs abrogate the earlier okay. surahs, and that's the way of interpreting the Quran pioneered by Muhammad himself and also adopted by the greatest Islamic commentator, the greatest Quranic commentator of all time, Ibn Kathir in the Middle Ages. And um, it's, it's only a very modern Western development that uh, the, the, the more, um, the more um, 
palatable Asura is and with regards to our Western sensibilities, the more it abrogates um, the earlier Asuras. But yeah, so, so there's, there's different views on that among Muslims, just as there are among people who profess to be Christians. And, and um, what about the view of the Holy Spirit? Does Islam have such a conception or such a view? Of the Holy Spirit? Um, well, right. no, well, not in the same sense that, um, that we did. Um, so um, the, so the, the Quran obviously denies that, that God can, or not the Quran, but Muslims at least deny that God can inspiration. And I would actually argue that there's evidence in the Quran which would, um, which would um, count against that claim, but we, maybe we'll get into that later. Um, but um, so not, not in the same sense that we would, we would um, talk about the Holy Spirit. Certainly, they would reject the concept of Trinity. And in fact, with respect to the passages in John 14 and uh, John 16, which um, talk about the, the Holy Spirit, well, and the Paraclitos, or the Helper, um, Muslims would use those passages and claim that they, in fact, don't predict the coming of the Holy Spirit, but predict the coming of Muhammad. And uh, perhaps later we can get into why that argument doesn't really work. Yeah, that that sounds good. We'll we'll come back and we'll we'll look a little deeper at these views. Um, give us the view of sin, kind of contrasting the Christian view with the Muslim view. What is what is sin, and and what is the nature of man? Sure, uh, great question. So, um, Muslims actually tend to reject the doctrine of um, original sin, which is um, the view that you have, you know, um, imputed guilt and inherited depravity and so forth from Adam. Um, the Quran, um, I, I think, uh, the Quran actually claims that, um, um, or it's, there's a passage in the Hadith which talks. Sorry, it's a Hadith. But there's a passage in the Hadith which talks about a dialogue between Adam and Moses, and Moses blaming Adam for the fall from paradise because actually in Islam, and we don't fall from the garden. Well, we do, but the Garden of Eden is in paradise, and um, rather than on earth. And so we actually come then from paradise to live on earth. And so you can make an argument that in some sense there is some concept of original sin, where there is a consequence of the fall which affects not just the ones who fell, namely Adam and Eve, but future humans as well. Um, but, um, yeah, they, they believe in, in sin, and they believe that there's, um, we can talk about this um, later as well, but there's um, a set of scales that are talking about in the Quran where your, um, your um, good deeds and to outweigh your bad deeds in order to taste and so on. So it's a very works-based system, um, but they certainly believe in sin. Um, so yeah. Um, What's uh, and how? What is the Christian view? You know, as, as Romans three says, for example, um, for we know what the, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every man may be silenced in the whole world accountable to God. Therefore, the, by the deeds of the law shall no man be justified in the sight, while through the law become conscious of sin. So it is that we've all violated God's law. None of us can live up to this righteous standard. And it says that um, now this righteousness apart from law has been made known to which the law and prophets have testified. Um, there is, um, there, um, this uh, righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, 
For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely through his grace, through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And then it talks about how God offers him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed before him unpunished as a demonstration of his justice at the present time so as to be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in, in Christ. And so um, the concept of sin in Christianity is that we've all fallen short of God's standard. We've all sinned. Um, we've all violated his laws. James chapter 2 says, he who has kept the entire law yet stumbled in just one part is guilty of violating all of it. And so um, we, um, we come under the just condemnation of God and the great paradox of the Old Testament is how can God be just and holy and simply forgive wicked men? Um, you know, Proverbs 17:15, he who, he who um, acquits the guilty who condemns the innocent forces him alike or an abomination before God. Um, there's in fact a story in the Hadith in Sahih al-Bakari where there's a man who's murdered 99 men and um, he's on his way, um, he's, he's looking, he's asking around about how he can receive forgiveness and eventually he goes to a monk and he asks the monk, how can I be forgiven? And the monk says, you can't. And so he murders the monk, now he's murdered 100 men. And so he continues to ask around and he's told he can go to a certain village and he's there, so he's on his way to the village and on the way the time for his death comes. And so the good and bad, bad angels come to argue over his soul and Allah basically decides that if he's one if he's closer to the city he was going to than the city he's coming from, then he can be forgiven. And so a lot of causes the city he was going to to come closer to him and the city he was going away from him. And so a lot rules that he can be, since he's one cubit closer to the city he was going to, he can be forgiven. And that's the concept of justice in Islam, um, which differs starkly from the, the concept of Christianity, which would say that you know, no sin is ever forgiven, justice is done perfectly but we are ourselves or it is paid for by the blood of Christ. And so that's um, another of the major differences. Uh, well, that kind of leads into the, 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 the next question of <clears throat> afterlife. Uh, what does the Muslim view, what is the Muslim view of afterlife? Is there heaven? Is there hell? How does that contrast with the Christian view? And how is salvation obtained? Or how is one damned to hell in, in the Muslim view and then contrast that with the Christian view, if you would? Right. So your listeners may have heard of the five pillars of Islam, um, which is the means by which people can obtain um, salvation. Now, your listeners may be surprised to learn that the five pillars aren't actually spoken about anywhere in the Quran. They're only found in Sahih Bukhari. Um, they're found in Chapter 2, the Gwan. And um, we read, narrated Ibn Umar, Allah's apostle said, Islam is based on the following five principles. One, to testify that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah, and Muhammad is Allah's apostle. Two, to offer the compulsory congregation prayers beautifully and perfectly. Three, to pay zakat, which is an obligatory charity. Four, to perform um, the hajj, which is a pilgrimage to Mecca. And five, to observe fast during the month of Ramadan. So those are the five things a Muslim needs to do in order to, to be a Muslim. Um, but does, does following that really um, guarantee that you're going to be um, granted entry into paradise? Well, well not really. Um, you know, the, there's a concept in Islam of, the, of um, what you might call an arbitrariness of God. You know, Abu Bakr, in, um, I think is one of the Hadith, um, and says that you know, he would not feel safe from the deception of Allah, even if he had one foot in paradise. In other words, 
even if he had one foot in paradise, he would still be afraid that um, Allah would change his mind and cast him into the lake of fire and hell. And uh, so there's, um, and as I mentioned, there's the concept of scales in Islam, where good deeds and bad deeds um, are weighed against one another. And uh, if you have more um, good deeds, and there's different weightings, good deeds may be assigned greater weightings than bad deeds, but nonetheless, you will um, be... Um, hey, jo- hey, Jonathan. Oh, yeah, sorry? Hey, hey, no. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. I'm not sure if, okay. you're, if your phone is up or not. I mean, I can hear you okay, just if you give a little more volume. Okay. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Is that this? Yep, yep, that's better. Okay. Um, so I, I was talking about the five pillars, which are um, not found in the Quran, but are found in, in Sahih Bukhari. Um, and there's there's a concept of scales in Islam, um, which, and, and, and your good deeds are weighed against your bad deeds, and determine whether you can be granted entry into paradise. Um, but um, as I mentioned, there's a concept of the arbitrariness of God. Um, so and in terms of the afterlife, or one thing I should also say is that um, according to the Quran, or according to the Hadith, the one way of which you can be guaranteed entry into paradise is if you um, is, is if you are killed in battle, killed in jihad. That's the one guarantee by which you can enter into paradise. Um, and I can give another, I can give up more quotes from the Hadith sources as well on on them. Um, so let, let me let me ask you this: On the Muslim view, then the 9/11 hijackers, when they put the planes into the buildings, and uh, and those who may have died, you know, in the UK, setting off bombs. So in their world view, that would mean they instantly go to heaven or guaranteed heaven. Uh, yeah, that would be the Islamic view. Um, that if you are killed in jihad, now I'm sure Muslims might argue whether that was justifiable jihad or not, but um, if you were killed for a last cause, then you will be guaranteed entry into paradise. That's the one guarantee. Okay. So that would kind of explain why so many are willing to do that. Right. Another interesting point, incidentally, is um, that in um, 110 Hadith Qudsi, which um, in the Hadith Qudsi is supposed to be the, the words of Allah himself, um, and uh, this is also echoed in Sahih Muslim, which is another of these collections. But in, um, in, in 110 Hadith Quds, they were told that Christians and Jews actually bear the penalty for the sins of Muslims in hell. So, we're, um, and this is off, this is, these passages are what I would often quote if someone says that the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is unjust, right? A Muslim says that, then I would quote this. This is the concept of penal substitution, if you will, in Islam. Wow. My Uma nation will be gathered into three groups. One sort will enter paradise without rendering an account of their deeds. Another sort will be reckoned an easy account and admitted into paradise. Yet another sort will come bearing on their backs heaps of sins like great mountains. Allah will ask the angels, though he knows best about them, who are these people? They will reply, they are humble slaves of yours. He will say, unload the sins from them and put the same over the Jews and Christians. Then let the humble slaves get into paradise by virtue of my mercy. And uh, in, in, in Sahih Muslim, there's a very similar um, passage as well. 
Um, but, um, but yeah, so that's, that's um, an important point as well. Yeah, so there, there's is very much a works-based system. You know, you talk about the five pillars of Islam and having to do, you know, certain amount of things and uh, so contra- contrast that with us with the with the Christian view. In the Christian worldview, how is one saved? How does one go to heaven? Um, right. And, and so, what what is what is hell? Right. So in the Christian view, uh, one is saved because and only because of the blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary. That He bore our sin. He stood in our law place, condemned. That all of the just condemnation of God because of our sin fell on the head of Christ. So he bore the penalty for all those who would trust in him. And and the for one to become the benefactor of what he has done at Cross Calvary, one has to turn from one's sin and repent, you know, turn hundred and eighty degrees and and cease trusting in your own goodness. You know, Isaiah says that even our most righteous acts are are like filthy rags before God. Our, our righteousness, our works of righteousness can never justify our sin. They can never take away our sin. Um, so um, the, the, um, the cross of Christ, um, at the cross of Christ, God, uh, it's like a legal transaction. Christ and God in the, in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, paid our debt in school, which means that now that the penalty has been paid and justice has been satisfied, God is now able to legally dismiss our case. And so when we um, turn from our sin and repent and cease trusting in our own goodness and instead put faith in what Christ has done, then we can be uh, made right with God, we can have peace with God, and we can enter into um, fellowship with him. All right, that's, you know, that's uh, definitely uh, the big contrast there between the two views. Um, lastly, let's look at really the most, one of the most important conceptions really outside of God is uh, the authority. What is the authority uh, in Islam as far as holy books? Um, what is their view of the Bible? And then give us the Protestant view of uh, Scripture. Give us a little breakdown of Sola Scriptura. So start sure, with, well, with Islam first. Yeah. Sure. Well, in Islam, uh, the authority is the Quran, which um, are the revelations of God to Muhammad starting in 610 AD um, when he received his first revelation in the Cave of Hira. Um, and, and these are uh, so, so the angel Jibril revealed the Quran to Muhammad. And, and at first, you know, he thought he was demon-possessed and he tries to throw himself off mountains and so forth. His, his uh, wife, uh, Khadija and um, her cousin work at the novel and basically convince him that he's not possessed by a demon and that um, he is in fact receiving revelations from God. He must be a prophet. And um, so, so the Quran would be the authoritative holy, holy book in Islam. But there's also other sources that Muslims go to, such as the Hadith, uh, which are the record, recorded sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. And there are the Sunnah, which are the deeds of Muhammad. And there are the, um, um, the, the, are the Sunnah, or the deeds of Muhammad. Then there's the Sirah, which is the biography, the biographies of Muhammad. Um, and there's also the Tafsir, which are the commentaries of the Quran. Um, so, so those would be the authoritative um, sources in Islam. Now, in Christianity, um, 
we um, as Reformed uh, Protestants um, hold to the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is the idea that scripture alone is sufficient for every, every, um, for all our theological information. Um, we're told in scripture that all scripture is the stuff or God breathed and is useful for teaching or rebuking and correcting, training and righteousness that men of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's in 2 Timothy 3.16. And um, so, so that's, that's the concept in Christianity. And we also have, of course, other sources which are um, which we would go to, but we don't regard as inspired like we do the Bible. So we might look at um, church councils and things, um, church history, and we might look at commentaries, um, but we don't um, consider those as being anywhere near the, um, we don't grant it anywhere near the, the same way that we do to the scripture, because that's, that's the only document which is God-inspired. Right, they're, they're, it's the only infallible rule. Yes, indeed. All right. Let's do this, Jonathan. Let's take a break for a few minutes, and let me give the number out for people to call in, and uh, we'll come back after the break, and we're going to look a little deeper. We're going to look at some of these objections, uh, some of the common objections to the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the deity of Christ, and also some objections we could give uh, to the to our Muslim friends. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, do that. We'll go ahead and take a break. We'll be back in about uh, three minutes. Go ahead and get a drink or whatever you need to do, and uh, be back in just a moment. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute apologist. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Brown, is Jesus Christ the Messiah of Isaiah 53? Oh, absolutely. Isaiah 53 is, is a key, perhaps the key, Messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, if you try to interpret it with reference to Israel or the righteous remnant within Israel, it breaks down. But when you recognize that beginning in 5213 through 5312, it first speaks of the Messiah's great exaltation, but then it says that, that he'll suffer and be terribly disfigured. And as the text goes on, what we learn is that his own people, Israel, didn't recognize him. He was suffering for their sins, and yet they thought he was suffering for his own sins. And then they come to the revelation. It was our sins that he bore. It was our, our guilt that he was carrying, and by his wounds were healed. So, so it paints the whole picture of the Messiah's exaltation, but only following his suffering, his rejection by his own people, and yet ultimately their eyes opened to receive him as the Messiah of Israel and thus the Savior of the world. John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purifying a heart is the work of the Holy Spirit, but there are some things you must do in response to his prompting. First, realize you can't purify your own heart. Next, put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross is the basis for your cleansing. Finally, study the Bible and pray. As you do so, the Spirit will continue to purify your life. There's no greater joy than knowing you're pure before God and that your life honors Him. May that joy be yours today, and may God use you powerfully for His glory. This is John MacArthur, looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church ultimately 
in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. Theology Matters, and we have Jonathan McClatchy here joining us as we are looking in depth at Islam and Christianity, and we are contrasting both systems. Before we get back to that, uh, I just wanted to give a couple quick uh, updates. Next week, we will be back on a regular scheduled day at uh, Thursday, and we are going to have Christian apologist and philosopher Ken Samples on the show, and I am really excited about this show. Uh, I've been listening to his podcast a lot, and I've, I'm going actually through his book, uh, World of Difference, which we're going to look at next week, and it's just been a been a really amazing, uh, <clears throat> amazing book, and really enjoying learning more about, uh, about Ken Samples. He's with uh, Reasons.org. And really excited to have him on the show. Now, in October, uh, we have done, we started last year where we dedicated the month uh, of shows to the Protestant Reformation. Now, it's going to be a little interesting because um, come next week, starting on Wednesdays and Thursdays, uh, I am going to be starting school again back at uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary. So, got to figure out how to work some of these days. Um, there may be several shows where we're going to be just doing uh, replays. You know, I have almost uh, two and a half years full of shows that we've done and uh, could play some replays. Uh, but for the month of October, uh, we want to do a bunch of new shows on the Protestant Reformation and uh, why it's important today. And we've got some really good guests that are going to be joining us. We have uh, Dr. Wynne Cordwin, 
Uh, we're going to have SCS grad Mike Clapper, and we tentatively have a debate set up for March 30th on or, or October 30th, day before the Reformation, on Sola Scriptura, with a pretty pretty high-powered uh, Catholic apologist and a uh, Protestant apologist uh, friend of mine. So be looking for that. So with that said, um, Jonathan, are you there? Yes, I am. All right. Well, let's um, let's now that we've kind of given the outline of what the the views hold, uh, let's take a little deeper look at some of the objections. Let me do this. I forgot to give the number out before we went to the break, which was the purpose of going to the break so that people could call. But I forgot to give the number. So uh, let me do that now. If you'd like to call in and speak with Jonathan, uh, especially. If you are a Muslim, we are inviting you to call in and would love to be able to dialogue with you and talk with you in a friendly uh, manner and demeanor, have rational dialogue and discourse. Uh, you know, that's what we try and do here on Theology Matters. You know, uh, we do shows and debates with people who don't agree with our position, and we think, you know, as long as the, the dialogue is civil, um, it moves. it can move dialogue forward. So... Uh, you don't have to be a, a Christian to, to call the show, and we'd love to hear from you if you're a Muslim. Uh, Christians are also welcome to call if you guys have questions. Uh, the number is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. All right, Jonathan, let's start with the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the one that seems to be problematic. For a lot of Muslims, I've seen Shabir Ali debate probably 10 to 15 times, and he continually brings up straw man positions on the doctrine of the Trinity. So take us through some of these objections, and uh, what is the Muslim objections, and how do we respond? Take take your time, because this can be a complex issue, so don't feel like you have to rush. We've got 40 minutes. (laughs) <laughs> sure. So, um, so one of the objections that Muslims would often raise to the doctrine of the Trinity is how can God be one and three at the same time, right? Are we not here violating the law of non-contradiction by saying that God is one and we're also saying that he's three? Well, what, what do we really mean by that? Well, we need to unpack the doctrine of the Trinity. And what we're saying is, so, so the law of non-contradiction does, only says that something cannot be a and non-A at the same time and in the same sense, okay? And so the doctrine of the Trinity is saying that God is one in one sense and three in another sense. So I would argue that it does not, in fact, violate the law of non-contradiction. We're saying that there's a oneness of being, a oneness of essence, and there's only one God. We're monotheists. But we believe, nonetheless, that there are three persons who make up that one essence. We're saying that God is one, but he is complex in his unity. So that's how we would understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And so I don't find that particular objection to be very um, persuasive. Another objection is, you know, who was Jesus praying to, right? He's on the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. And um, he says, um, for example, on the cross, my Lord, my God, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, which, of course, echoes the words of Psalm 22. He's also praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. And who was he talking to? Um, and um, a Christian response would be to say, well, he 
he's he's not the same person as the father. He's praying to the father. The father and the son are different persons. The father never became incarnate. Only the son became incarnate. And so the, when, when Christ is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the cross, he's praying to his father as a different person. Um, so, so that objection also doesn't really hold much water. And some might say, well, it's a doctrine of the Trinity, not polytheistic. And um, the answer is no. Um, scripture teaches over and over again there's only one God. Um, you know, we read um, many, many times in both the Old and New Testament there's only one God. One quick example in Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, my servants whom I have chosen, um, that um, you may know and understand that I am. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I even I am Yahweh, and apart from me there is no Savior. Um, and this concept is is um, consistent theme throughout the whole of the Bible. So we, we're not teaching that there's multiple gods. The Quran actually represents the Trinity as teaching multiple gods. Uh, for example, uh, every single time the Quran um, repudiates the Trinity, and does so many times, um, the Quran um, consistently gets the definition wrong. So, um, so for example, in Surah uh, five. And verse 75, it says that, um, or, if, or if you were to read um, passages before that, it talks about in verse that there were, and that the Christians are, are worshiping multiple. God, let me pull that up real quick. Um, okay, so, so it says in, in, verse, in verse 73, surely just believers are those who say Allah is a third of the three well, there is no God but one God. And so it's, of course, here repudiating the Christian conception of the Trinity. And the Christians are not saying that Allah is a third of the three gods, but rather it's saying that there's one God made up of three persons. Um, a Muslim would also say, you know, how can the Son of God be his own father? That's not, I mean, the, once, you, once you dispel the notion that the Trinity equals modalism, uh, then, then that objection really doesn't, doesn't hold any water anymore. You know, Jesus was baptized, there is a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit of God descends on him um, as a dove, in the form of a dove, um, and lands on him. You know, so that, that indicates that the Father, Son, and Spirit are different persons. Nonetheless, there are titles that are reserved only for Yahweh in the Old Testament, which are applied to Jesus in the New. And so the, there are five propositions which are needed to demonstrate that um, the, the concept of the Trinity. Number one is monotheism. Number two, the Father is God. Number three, the Son is God. And four, the Spirit is God. And five, this entails no logical contradiction. And I would argue that you can do all of um, you would all, um, so, uh, so that that's um, how I would argue for the Trinity. Um, if you, um, from from um, um, defending these propositions. Um, Muslims will often also respond to the incarnation by saying, is it not a logical contradiction to say that Christ is fully God and yet also fully man? Sure, that's got to be a log- logical contradiction, right? Um, and I actually don't think it is. I mean, um, first of all, um, there are other objections which are associated with this one as well, such as, you know, God cannot enter his own creation. How can God possibly die as well? How can, how can an eternal being be both immortal and mortal. I mean, what sense are you meaning that he's both mortal and immortal? Well, and, and I would respond to that by saying 
number one, why can't God enter them into them creation? Because even in the Quran, in Surah um, Al-Nami, which is the 27th chapter of the Quran, it says that when he, that Moses, came to the burning bush, he was called, blessed is the one who's in the fire and the one who's around it, and pure is Allah, the Lord of the world. So here you have a case in the Quran where Allah has entered into his own creation. Um, another point I want to make on that is That's that good. Uh, if, if, you take the, if you take the Quran, uh, Muslims believe that the Quran has two natures, right? They believe that it has an eternal nature because it's inscribed and stone in paradise from all of eternity, and yet it also has a physical, temporal, earthly nature. And so if you were to burn up the pages of the Quran, you would still have the eternal, um, it would only be the, the physical nature of the Quran, which is burned up. The eternal nature cannot be destroyed, according to Islam. So here you have a, a parallel concept for the, 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 for the doctrine of the hypostatic union, even in Islam. So I, I don't think that uh, this objection really, really holds water. Sure, the, so we're teaching with the doctrine of the hypostatic union that Christ is fully God and also fully man. The human nature of, God, of Christ died on the cross, but the divine eternal nature is eternal and cannot die, it's immortal. So that, that's how I respond to those objections. Another one is that the Trinity, the word Trinity is not found in Scripture, it's not found in the Bible, but then you could also say, well, the word Tawid, the oneness of God, is not in the Quran, and although it occurs in the Hadith, the word Trinity also occurs in the Church Father writings, the earliest occurrences in Theophilus of Antioch in the second century, but um, it, it, it's all, the word is also used um, in uh, Tertullian and of Carthage. Um, so, uh, and, and these sources are closer to the Bible than the Hadith sources are to the Quran. The Hadith sources tend to be 9th to 10th century thereabouts. So um, that's, that's how I'd respond to that. Um, I'd also argue that although the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, its concept most certainly is. Um, so if you were to um, read the book of Revelation, for example, you read several times that Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, which is a title in the Old Testament reserved only for Yahweh. If you read Isaiah 42, 6, and Isaiah 48, 12, that concept is there. Um, Jesus calls himself the I Am, or the Ego Aini in the Greek, which echoes the Greek Septuagint, um, where, as I, as I, I read, or I recited Isaiah 43, 10, and 11, a verse, um, um, verse, uh, and in, in that passage, it talks about how Yahweh is the ego I mean, they may not understand the ego I mean, I am. So he also claims to be the son of man who um, receives worship by, all follow- by his followers. Because um, Daniel 7 talks about the son of man, and Jesus refers back to it. In Daniel 7, Daniel says, In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one coming on the clouds of the sun. He looked like a son of man. He approached the ancient days. I was led to his presence, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men, every language worshipped him. His kingdom is the everlasting kingdom, not because the meaning is one that will never be destroyed. So, um, so, so Christ claims to be one who is worshipped. Um, and this is what, is what caused Joseph Caiaphas to tear his clothes, um, which is because he, he, he had spoken what he thought was blasphemy. Um, Jesus accepts worship from John, from, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 20. 8 and 29, he accepts worship from Thomas, um, 
Whereas John, when he tried to worship the angel, was told, don't do that, worship only God. Um, Jesus also, um, um, he, um, he says in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, to Satan in the wilderness, worship the Lord your God only, serve him only. Um, and yet, according to John 17, 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me with the glory I shared with, shared with you before the world was created. Well, guess what? I am Yahweh. That is my name. I'll not give my glory to another or share my praise with idols. So when you put these pieces together, and there's many, many more arguments we can give you. Um, so when, when the Muslim claims that Jesus never said, I am God, worship me, well, yes, he didn't use that particular expression, but nonetheless, he communicated that idea. Um, you can also read um, that Jesus is worshipped by the angels in Hebrews 1. He is um, described as, um, in, in John 12, we're told that, that Isaiah saw his glory, and it quotes from Isaiah 6 and references that, saying that Jesus saw his glory. Isaiah 6, Isaiah beheld the glory of Yahweh. So there's, there's many, many arguments there. Um, one more example is in, is in 1 Peter 3.15, which says, um, um, but in your heart should be Christ as Lord. And the previous verse, verse 14, had said, do not fear what they fear, nor be afraid, which is a quotation from Isaiah 8, verse 12. And then verse 13, sorry, verse 15 of 1 Peter 3 carries on the quotation into verse 13 of Isaiah 8, where Isaiah 8.13 says, Yahweh you shall honor as holy. Verse um, 15 of 1 Peter 3 says, Christ you shall honor as holy. Um, so so there, there's a huge overwhelming case from Scripture to move the to the divine status of Jesus. And I would even go so far as to argue that you can argue historically that Jesus um, did in fact regard himself as God and claim to be God. Right. Right. That's good. Um, one thing I would say is, is maybe too, can you, because uh, one of the things you brought up was this charge of tritheism, really. Uh, explain what is, what is tritheism and, and kind of how do they confuse that, what people confuse that sometimes with the Trinity. Right, so tritheism would be the idea that there are multiple gods. The Trinity implies that there are multiple gods. And uh, you know, this, as I mentioned, comes up in, in Surah, the section of Surah Almeida, the fifth chapter, verses 72 through 76. And it's, um, and, and it's, it's interesting um, that when the Quran says in Surah 575 that his mother was very truthful, both of them used to eat food. Um, and you wonder, why would they say that Mary would eat food? I mean, it's obvious that you know, people have to eat food. Um, verse 116 of that same chapter, if you read the context, when Allah said, O Isa, which Jesus, Son of Miriam, did you say to the people, take me and my mother as gods beside Allah? He said, pure are you. It does not behoove me to say what is not right for me. Had I said it, you would have known it. Do you know what is in my heart, and I do not know what is in yours? You alone have full knowledge of all that is unseen. So um, it seems to me that the Quran is claiming that, um, or implying at least, that Mary uh, is being exalted to the status of deity uh, and may even um, be part of the Trinity in, in Muhammad's understanding, or the understanding of the author of the Quran. And Muslims might come back and say, well, this is just talking about how the Roman Catholics venerate Mary and they idolize her, and it's just repudiating that. Whereas I would respond to that by saying, first of all, you have to read the context. Why does 75 of that chapter say that Mary ate food? That's the first point. Secondly, I believe it's in, I believe it's in uh, Surah Al-Anam, verse 101, for memory, 
it says that um, far be it from Allah that he should beget a son. How can he have a son when he never had a wife? And, um, you know, it's a complete misrepresentation of the concept of sonship in Christianity. Um, and it seems to me that the author of the Quran not only thinks there are three gods associated with the Trinity, but that Mary is one of them. So that's what I say. Okay. Uh, do we have any arguments we can use against uh, Unitarianism? Against Unitarianism? Well, I think um, there are philosoph- good philosophical reasons to reject Unitarianism as well as biblical reasons. So one philosophical reason is you know, if, if, if you know, there's 99 beautiful names of Allah, according to Islam, one of them would be love. How can God be, how can that be an eternal attribute? How can love be an eternal attribute if indeed God is monadic, if he is alone from eternity past? Because who was he loving before his creation? Is he dependent upon his creation in order to exercise the attribute of love and in order to be loving? Um, so there, the doctrine of the Trinity um, suggests that God is a community. Um, as Rabbi Zacharias has put it, there is unity in diversity in the community of the Trinity. That there's um, that there's a divine dance, if you will. The Father, the Father, Son, and Spirit love each other perfectly. There's a per- perfect love relationship between each of the members of the Trinity. And uh, biblically, and I think that it's very easy to demonstrate. Um, I haven't talked about the deity of the Holy Spirit. From Scripture, I've talked about the deity of Christ. Um, the deity of the Holy Spirit can be demonstrated if you look at, for example, Acts 13, um, where the Holy Spirit act, actively sends Paul and Barnabas in a very personal way. We also um, are told um, in Acts 5 that Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit, and in both cases, the word God is used interchangeably with the Holy Spirit. Um, and you know, Ananias and Sapphira are told are told that they've not lied to men, but to, to, but to God, for example. Um, so the Holy Spirit is clearly God. I've shown you that Christ is revealed as God in Scripture, and clearly the Father is as well. So that's how I would respond. Okay, very good. Let me give the number out again. I've uh, got about 20 minutes left in the show, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. would love to hear from you guys. All right, Jonathan, let's move on to the deity of Christ. Now, you you tackled some of those arguments uh, relating to the doctrine of the Trinity because they're kind of inter, intertwined. But give us the Christian, the positive Christian case for the deity of, of Christ. Right. And then maybe we can look at some of the objections that are often used as far as uh, him being the firstborn of creation and um, some of the other examples that he used of him praying to the Father um, the big one that always comes up is the fact he didn't know his time, the time of his of his coming. Oh, yeah. The father knows that. So go ahead right. and tackle some of those. Well, you mentioned the example as an objection. In Colossians one, it says that he's the firstborn over all creation, and I think that's that's um, if, if you read the context, I think it's talking about how he, he has the inheritance of the firstborn. So it's more the inheritance rights rather than being the firstborn of creation, because it teaches also in that same chapter that he's the creator of all things, not all other things. So he can be the creator of all things and himself be a created being. And we're taught elsewhere in Scripture that he is, in fact, the creator of all things, that he's not simply a created being. He's not the firstborn over all creation in terms of being um, temporarily after the Father. 
Um, so that's the first point I would make. Um, I'd say, and since I've already defended the deity of Christ from Scripture, let me just demonstrate historically that Jesus did in fact claim to be God, because this is something which Muslims will often say, that the Christians have just twisted the Scriptures and that he didn't actually claim that of himself, even though um, the Quran attests that the Christians and Jews haven't um, modified the Scriptures, and they have even possession, in fact, at the time of Muhammad's day, which we could perhaps get into if you want later. But... Um, um, you, you give the Mark 13 and Matthew 24 example where Jesus says no one power, not even the angels in heaven, but only the Son, and not, not even the Son, but only the Father. And it's unlikely that this would be an invention by Christians. Why would they make up a saying and attribute to Jews which suggested that the Son was ignorant of the date of his own return? But in fact, um, there's, there's actually a textual variant where the phrase nor the Son is omitted, and it's easy to understand why. But what does this saying do if it is indeed an authentic saying of Jesus? It's the ascending ladder in Jesus' self-perception from man to the Son to the Father, a scale in which Jesus is portrayed as being superior to every human and angelic being. And so that is actually a demonstration of the historical divine self-understanding of Jesus, not the reputation of it. But why does Jesus... Um, why is Jesus ignorant of the date of his return? That's still something we need to address. Well, I think with the incarnation, Christ laid aside some of his divine privileges, such as omniscience and omnipresence. He humbled himself, making himself of no reputation and his human likeness, humbling himself to the point of death, even death of the cross. So he laid aside some of the divine privilege and entered into his own creation. Um, so that's um, how I begin um, to respond uh, to that. Matthew uh, 11:27 and Luke 10:22, which are parallels. Um, Jesus says, "No one knows the, the Father except the Son, or so no one is the Son except the Father, and no one is the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son wills to reveal Him." And so, um, why would the early church make up a saying attributed to Jesus, which suggested that the Son was unknowable? Um, but again, so if that's an authentic saying, it suggests that Christ regarded himself as the only revelation of the Father to mankind, again establishing the divine self-understanding of Jesus. He calls himself repeatedly the Son of Man, which fulfills the historical criterion of dissimilarity. He's not very often called that by the early church fathers. And um, we, um, the, the Jewish concept of Messiah does not have any perception or expectation of a divine human messianic figure. So, so that's um, that's important. I mean, why would a, why would anyone conclude that um, a man who had been crucified on a cross was God incarnate? Right. That was a shameful thing. And um, Deuteronomy 21 verse 23: He who is killed by being hung on a tree is is under God's curse. And this, um, the Christians were mocked for this belief. Uh, for example, by Trifo, the Jewish philosopher in the Tao, which um, just a martyr in the second century, and also graffiti in Rome, um, where um, is a portrayal of a crucified donkey that worships his God. So Christians would have invented that kind of thing. Yeah, so I think part of the problem is that I see, not only with Muslims, but also uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Oneness Pentecostals, uh, maybe not so much Oneness Pentecostals, but um, especially with, with Mormons, Muslims, and Jehovah's Witnesses, is this not uh, not understanding what the hypostatic union is and kind of zeroing and 
in and focusing on all these texts that talk about the humanity of Christ. So right. give us maybe a little bit, what are the, what is the, some of the creeds, like the Athanasian Creed and some of this? Um, talk to us, what is, what is the hypostatic union? Kind of give us a little more uh, an explanation of that and some of the historical creeds and stuff like that basis for it. Right, so the hypostatic union is that Christ is fully God and fully man. And the early church, um, the early church had more of a problem, not with the denial of the deity of Christ, but the denial of the humanity of Christ. And those people were known as the Docetics, the Docetic Gnostics. And the Docetics, um, one of the leading of um, Docetics is a man named Marcion, for example. And um, and this, uh, the, the Docetics are repudiated by John, the apostle in particular, in his gospel and his epistles. Um, these are written, at least in some measure, as a polemic against Docetism. And... Um, and uh, Ignatius repudiates Josephism and is repudiated by Irenaeus and others. And uh, that was a heresy in the early church. Later, Arius um, denied the deity of Christ. And um, so you have different people at different points in church history denying either the humanity of Christ or the deity of Christ. The Council of Nicaea, man, in 325 AD, convened by the Emperor Constantine, where they um, articulated a, a definition of the Trinity, which, um, was, um, which distinguished between being in person is either in my definition, and the Athenian Creed does something similar. So, um, so that that's essentially to the concept. Okay, that's that's good. That uh, I think that kind of helps a little bit. Um, and I guess pretty much just being that we believe Christ rose from the dead, there's historical arguments. Do, do you want to give a couple of the uh, maybe some of the historical arguments for the resurrection? real quick, and then we'll jump into some of the differences between the Quran and the Bible. What, what's some of the alternative explanations about uh, Jesus? Um, well, I, I guess Islam only... It, it's weird, because I've heard some, um, some Muslims say that Judas was on the cross or someone else, but uh, how, how yeah, do they... The Quran doesn't claim that, but Muslims often interpret, that, interpret the Quran in light of that sort of view. Um, and I mean, there's a later development that be, um, but the, I mean, the Quran is somewhat vague about what happened. It said it was diluted by resemblance. I mean, there's no commentary um, in it, on it. There's no comments of um, of it in the Hadith sources. Um, it, it's just in the span of 40 Arabic words. There's nothing else in the Quran or Hadith on the crucifixion of Christ, um, and we aren't really given much info on the resurrection either. Um, but I mean, the, the historical arguments for the resurrection are very powerful, but I think um, it's probably too much to get into here. Okay, um, yeah, that's that's fine. That's probably right. We only got a got a few minutes left. Go ahead and give us some uh, contrasting between the the Bible and the Quran, because really that's one of the biggest issues is this uh, uh, issue of of our authority in, our, in the holy books. So give us give us kind of the Bible versus the Quran. What's right. the evidence that supports the the reliability of the Bible, and what's uh, what's the evidence for the Quran? Well, the Quran and the Bible have very different textual histories, for one thing. So, the Bible, or at least the New Testament, enjoyed what's called a free or uncontrolled transmission, where the Church, until 313 A.D., where you have the Edict of Milan, which grants uh, religious freedom to the Roman Empire, um, you have the early Church under intense persecution. They had no governing body or person um, um, who was imposing textual uniformity on the New Testament. 
um, books. Whereas with respect to the Quran, um, you have in, in uh, first of all, in under the caliphate of the first relegated caliph Abu Bakr, um, you have the Battle of uh, Yamama, um, and following the Battle of Yamama, because the men of Kula, who are the men who memorized the Quran, are being slaughtered, you have to, um, they, they had a need to gather in, according to the canonical story in Sayyid gather uh, together the different parts of the Quran and compile it into one volume, because prior to that, people had it memorized and been written on different like bits of leaves and, and shoulder blades and so on, and uh, and, and uh, so they they, they brought um, that and compiled it and and uh, Zayd ibn Tabit was involved in that and Umar was and those are in the in the 50s and the 650s AD um, under the caliphate of Uthman ibn Affan there was a concern because there were different readings of the Quran and so um, were, the, the Muslims would differ about the readings of the book. And so Uthman and Dida and Tabit and others take it upon themselves to compile or to, to produce uh, an authorized version of the Quran, um, which would, um, and, and they burned all the other manuscripts. And so we only have, we have to take Uthman's word for it on that, that he got it right. We don't have to do that with the New Testament, especially since we have multiple lines of transmission for the New Testament. Uh, and we have very, and there's much earlier manuscript attestation as well, much richer manuscript attestation. But um, it's interesting that there are passages actually in the in the Hadith sources which talk about how the Quran has not been textually preserved. So you may have heard the common claim that the Quran has been perfectly textually preserved right down to the letter, and that's just completely fictional. Um, there are sources not in Christian sources, not in Jewish sources, not in, and there there are Muslim sources which tell us that there are entire verses and chapters of the Quran which are missing. For example, there's one surah in, in the Quran called Surah 9, which is 128 verses long, uh, Surah Barat, or Surah Al-Tawbah, and there's two different names for it. And um, in the Hadith, in, um, in Sahih Muslim 2286, we read, we used to recite a surah which resembled in length and severity to Surah Barat. It's 128 verses long. Um, I have, however, forgotten it, with the exception of this which I remember out of it. There were two valleys full of riches for the son of Adam. He would long for a third valley, and nothing would fill the stomach of the son of Adam but dust. And that's not in the Quran. And we used to recite a surah which resembled one of the surahs of Masabahat. And I have forgotten it, but remember this much out of it. O people who believe, why do you say that which you do not practice? And that is recorded, and that is recorded in your necks as a witness against you, and you would be asked about on the day of resurrection. Um, that's um, not in the Quran. And Sunan Ibn Majah 1944, for example, says, it was narrated that Aisha, as one of the wives of Muhammad, said the verse of stoning and of breastfeeding an adult ten times was revealed, and the people was wounding under my pillow. When the messenger of Allah died, who we were preoccupied with his death, and a tame sheep came in and ate it. Um, there are there's many others. I can give you one more. Um, in Sahih al-Bakari, um, 817, which is in chapter... 82, um, Allah sent Muhammad with the truth and revealed the holy book to him. And then among what Allah revealed was the verse of Rajan, the Sunni of married person, male and female, who commits illegal sexual intercourse. And we did recite this verse and understood and memorized it. Allah's apostle did carry out the punishment of stoning, and so did we after him. I am afraid that after a long time has passed, someone will, somebody will say, but by Allah, we do not find the verse of the Rajan in Allah's book. 
unless they will go astray by leaving um, an obligation which Allah has revealed. And I can quote others as well. But the point is that um, there are entire verses and chapters of the Quran which according to the Muslim sources are no longer with us. Um, so, so that's um, another point that's important. There are historical blunders in the Quran as well, and historical anachronisms. Um, for example, um, there's, um, um, we, we read that um, Joseph was sold for, um, for dirham coins long before coinage had even been invented. Uh, that's in Surah 12, verse 20. Um, we're told that David produced um, chain mail long before chain mail was invented by the Celts in 500 BC. David, of course, lived about 1000 BC. Um, that's in Surah 34, verses 10 and 11. We're told that crucifixion was practiced in ancient Egypt before crucifixion was invented by the Romans. That's in Surah 12, 41 and Surah 20, 71. Um, we're told that the Samaritans led the Israelites astray and deceived them into worshiping the golden calf at the time of Moses before, um, long before the people of Samaria was invented. Um, we have um, the Quran confuses Mary and Miriam in Surah 1928. Um, she's spoken about as being the sister of Moses and Aaron. And um, in Surah 66, verse 12, we're told that she um, is um, um, that she is the daughter of Amran, um, which of course is Moses' uh, father. So it's abundantly clear, I think, from this that Muhammad is confusing Mary, the mother of Jesus, with Miriam, who's his sister, who lived centuries earlier. So we have a historical blunder there. Um, we also have scientific blunders in the Quran. For example, we're told that stars are missiles which Allah uses to hit demons with. We're told. And also in Surah 18, verse 86, that Jubal Karnin, who most scholars would identify, most Quranic commentators would identify as Alexander the Great, traveled so far west that he found the setting place of the sun and found it setting in a muddy spring and found the people living nearby. There are plenty of other blunders in the Quran and the Hadith with respect to the science, and so that's a problem. Um, so there's, there's so many um, issues there. The Quran also talks about the other holy books, such as the, Quran, such as the Bible and uh, and books, the parts of the Bible, such as the Injil, which is the Gospel, and the Torah, and, and also the Psalms, and it actually claims that these are previous revelations from God. And um, I, um, I'm not sure if we have time to at the moment, but I have, I'm, I'm able to produce a, a very compelling argument um, looking at different parts of the Quran that the author of the Quran thinks that the, um, that the Injil and the Torah and the Psalms that he's referring to are in the possession of the Christians and Jews of this day. And that um, suggests that um, the common claim by Muslims that Christians have um, edited, modified the Bible such that it no longer resembles what was originally written, that argument doesn't work. And also the argument that the, that the Injil was a special book only given to Jesus doesn't work um, either uh, because um, the, the Quran um, claims otherwise. Um, and the Quran also claims that you can find Muhammad in the Bible. And it claims that Muhammad is prophesied in the Bible, and so Muslims are forced to try and find him somewhere in the Bible. And they've searched high and low, and they haven't been able to find him. Um, for example, in, in um, Deuteronomy 18, um, we're told that um, God will raise up for you a prophet like Moses from among your own brothers. And... Um, and uh, that, that the Muslims understand this to refer to Muhammad because the brothers, of course, of the Israelites would be the Ishmaelites, and since Muhammad was a, an Ishmaelite, then that's referring to him. 
The problem is that if you read earlier in that same chapter, um, we, in verse 2, for example, in verse 1 and 2, the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. And that, of course, has to refer to Hebrews. So the, the word brothers, if you read the context, means Israelites, not Ishmaelites. Um, John 14 and John 16 um, doesn't work either unless you think that Muhammad actually taught the disciples themselves or lived within people. Um, so you, you have to read the context and apply it consistently. Um, the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, is one more that the ghost is one of the most popular ones as well, um, where we read, um, for example, in, in Surah, uh, sorry, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 16, speaking a betrothed um, to, be, um, to be wife, um, writes to her husband, uh, is, is speaking about her husband to be, and says, His mouth is full of sweetness. And he's wholly desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And so, this um, so Muslims ignore here the problems inherent in moving from one language to another, and even within the same language family, you know, Arabic and Hebrew, are both Semitic languages. And they move from a word Mahmamadam to Mahmamat, and which is a singular form, and then they go to Muhammad. And they finally conclude there that in the original language we find Muhammad. Um, but if you want to apply that consistently and apply and, and take that to mean Muhammad every time you find that word in scripture, you would have to say that Muhammad is taken from a house in First Kings 20, verse 6, that he's destroyed by fire in Second Chronicles 36, verse 19, and that Muhammad becomes a ruin in Israel 64, in Isaiah 64, verse 10. Um, so um, none of, all, all these arguments, as soon as you start to prod them and actually look below the surface, I mean, they're like a precariously balanced Jenga tower. You give it a touch, and the whole thing collapses. And I'd say the same thing is true of Islam as a whole. Okay, great. Well, we've got like a minute left. Go ahead, uh, if you would, and give us what are some good resources uh, for those wanting to learn more about Islam uh, and wanting to be able to engage uh, our Muslim friends. What are what are some good maybe podcasts, some books? Well, you could read Miguel um, Qureshi, in Allah Finding Jesus, where he gives his story about how he came to know Christ. You, um, people could read um, James White's book, which is very accessible. It's called What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. Um, the AnsweringMuslims.com website is good. Um, there's, um, there's an abundance of resources out there. I mean, I'd recommend that people uh, read Islam, Muslim sources together information on Islam, not just Christian sources. So if you want to read some of the primary literature, I'd suggest, I'd suggest reading, um, reading um, Ibn Sahak's Sirat Prazul Allah, which is the earliest biography of Muhammad from the 8th century. Um, I'd also suggest um, reading the Quran for yourself and reading some of the Hadith sources, like Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, Sunan Abu Dawood, Sunan Abu Majah, and so forth. I'd um, recommend um, reading um, The Seal of Nectar, which is a classic biography of Muhammad. Um, and, yeah, so, so these are some of the resources I'd recommend. Um, there's um, plenty of articles at the Christian Apologetics Alliance. I've written many of them up there myself, and at crossexamine.org. And with the resources there. Um, yeah. Well, appreciate you coming on, Jonathan. We'll press the... Press for time, but uh, we will definitely have you back on again. You're a wealth of knowledge, and uh, appreciate you being willing to come on and share with us. 
<laughs> Thank you. All right, my friend. God bless. And uh, folks, we'll be back. Yeah, we'll be back next week. Uh, might be Saturday night with our show with Ken Samples. Uh, go to our Facebook page, Theology Matters with the Blues, and uh, you'll get more of our updates. And I uh, give a shout-out to my friend Benjamin Long listening in. Appreciate you tuning in and supporting us. And uh, appreciate everybody who is with us and follows us and supports us. Uh, thanks for all of our, our wonderful guests. Without you guys, uh, the show wouldn't be nearly as entertaining, I guarantee it. Appreciate everybody, and look forward to next week, Ken Samples, uh, when worldviews collide. God bless.